Hi, my name is Jeff Redding. I'm a preaching elder here at Walton Community Church in Monroe, Georgia. Before we begin the sermon, our church would like to invite you to join us as we gather every Sunday morning for worship at 10 a.m. You can learn more about our church on our website at waltoncommunitychurch.org. Thanks for listening. Amen. Well, good morning. I think, that, is my mic on? Are we good? Awesome. I am the last person uh, to have any type of technological skill, so I wanted to make sure we were good. Well, as we continue worshiping this morning, uh, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be, and we're just going to be looking at one verse this morning, and that is verse 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 is going to be the verse we're considering, and the title of the message this morning is Christ Our Security. Christ our security. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Listen now to what Paul writes. He says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, whom indeed is interceding for us. Amen. When she began her maiden voyage from Southampton, England, to New York City on April 10th, 1912, virtually no one thought that the Titanic would be embarking on what would also be her final voyage. Philip Franklin, who was the vice president of White Star Line, the company that produced the vessel, commented before the ship's departure saying, quote, There is no danger that the Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable and nothing but inconvenience will be suffered by the passengers. Close quote. But just four days later, on April 14th, the ship struck an iceberg at 11.40 p.m. and by 2.20 a.m. it had sunk to the depths of the North Atlantic. Out of the 2,223 passengers, 1,517 people were lost. Now, I share that tragic story because all along the passengers were told there was nothing to worry about. They were promised safe and secure passage across the sea from England to America, nothing to worry about, everything would be fine. But the story teaches us it's one thing to be told you're safe and secure, It's another thing to know and actually be sure that you are safe and secure. Well, Romans 8 opens up with the best news that we could ever hear. Back in Romans 8, verse 1, Paul declares the greatest announcement that we as sinners could ever hear, that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation. All of us and all of humanity being born in Adam have inherited a nature of rebellion against God and we have lived in that state of rebellion. Though God has made us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we have not. The Bible tells us we've all, like sheep, gone astray. We've each turned to our own way, giving our devotion to anything and everything other than God. And as such, because God is just and good, he does not let our rebellion go unpunished. 
Before him on our own, we are condemned, and on our own, we have no shot of escaping that condemnation. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says, that is right now at this very moment no longer the case for you. Through faith alone and Christ alone, we are now free of our condemnation. In Christ, we are no longer guilty of rebellion against God, but we've been declared innocent of all charges against him. Before him, he regards us as if we've never broken the law, but as if we have been perfectly obedient to the law. To use a fancy theological word, we are justified, declared righteous. But it gets better. Here at the closing section of chapter 8, Paul unleashes in a series of rhetorical questions assuring us as believers of our security and permanent standing in Christ. Really, verses 31 to 39, it's worthy of an entire year's worth of sermons probably, but you could really title this section a catechism on assurance. It's a series of questions and answers where Paul is assuring us of our standing in Christ. And here specifically in verse 34, Paul turns his attention once again to the issue of condemnation of being guilty before God. And he asks these Roman believers and us, he asks, who is to condemn? Now the tense of the question is actually a future tense. So when he reads this, he's envisioning what will happen down the road, both in the immediate future and at the final judgment when Christ returns. So who will be able to bring condemnation back on the believer? Who will overturn the the verdict of justification that God has issued? Tomorrow, next week, and at the last judgment. Will that ever happen? And of course, Paul's implied answer when he asks is nobody. Nobody. None will ever be able to successfully reverse our status in, in Christ. In Christ, we are free from condemnation now and we will be free from our condemnation forever. I saw a preacher who once titled his sermon on this text, Uncondemnable. I don't know if that's actually a word, but I love the word. As Christians, we are uncondemnable. But Paul doesn't stop there. He, he, in the rest of this verse, he tells us why this is. And he doesn't point to anything in us. He doesn't point to any work on our part or anything we've brought to the table Rather, he points us solely to Christ and Christ alone. So this time, the go-to Sunday school answer actually is the right answer. The answer is Jesus. It's only Jesus. We're forever safe and secure from condemnation because of Christ's work on our behalf. That's Paul's message in this verse, and that's the main idea of this message this morning. We are forever safe and secure from condemnation because of Christ's work on our behalf. And as Paul points us to the work of Christ on our behalf, he presents his work like a chain. There's four components here that take us from Christ's work that is finished to what Christ is doing now in the present. And we're going to look at all of these four realities of what Christ has done and is doing for us in turn. And I pray as we do that those of us who know him will be strengthened in our faith And as we prayed earlier, that those of you who do not yet trust Christ will look to him. The first thing Paul wants to tell us is that we are secure because of the death of Christ. The death of Christ. 
Following the rhetorical question, Paul writes in verse 34 to the the question, who is to condemn? He writes, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is the one who died. When Jesus went to the cross, he went to suffer and die as a substitute under the judgment we deserved. It's in this way, God gave his only begotten son, as John 3.16 tells us. Just as God provided a ram to die in the place of Abraham's only son, Isaac, so God has sent his eternal son to die in our place under our judgment. He gave, he delivered his son over to judgment to die the death we deserve in our place. And that has now been accomplished. When he came, he lived a full life of perfect obedience. He was spotless free from sin, perfectly obedient to the law, perfectly and perpetually loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, mind, and strength. He had no sins of his own, only perfect obedience. But at the cross, our record was transferred to him. He died under our judgment. We feel the pain of this. We feel the agony of this when we hear Jesus quote Psalm 22, 1 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God did not turn his back on the son in horror. He turned his judgment upon the son. He poured out his wrath upon the son in our place. He was treated on the cross as if he lived our lives. As if he committed all the countless sins that we've committed just this week. In doing so, The wrath of God has been fully satisfied toward us. Our condemnation has been removed from us and it's been given to Jesus. But that's just part of the picture. Jesus didn't just go to the cross to be judged in our place, but beloved, he went to the cross so that we might receive his perfect record in return. As Paul says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Through the cross, not only is the record of our guilt removed, but through the cross, we've now received a record of perfect obedience. This is why we are justified. This is why we are declared righteous. The good news of the cross isn't just that we are forgiven and our slate slate is erased. It's that in the place of our guilty slate, we now receive a new slate. A new record, the perfect record of Jesus. And this is good news because to be reconciled to God, we must be declared perfect. We must be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. To enter life, as Jesus once told a lawyer in Luke 10, we must keep the law. We must be perfect. We must do this and live. We haven't, but he has. And now forever, we are regarded as if we have done that because of him. At the cross, he took our filthy rags of sin and in return, he gives us his perfect robes. He's clothed us in the garments of salvation. When God looks at us, he no longer sees us for the life of sin and rebellion that we've lived, but he sees us as if we lived the perfect life of his son, all because of the cross. At the cross, this was executed. It's complete, it's done, there's nothing left to be added. This is why we're free. 
This is why we've been justified. This is why Paul can tell us that we are free from condemnation. And this is the foundational reality that all the rest that we will consider this morning flows from. Take away the cross. There is no importance to the resurrection. There's no importance to Christ's ascension. No importance to his intercession that we've read about. It all begins with the cross. This is the ground of our redemption. I love uh, the way Rod Rosenblatt, a Lutheran theologian, emphasizes this point. He, He once shared a story of a friend of his who had a conversation with another believer. And he writes, A friend of mine was walking down a street in Minneapolis one day and was confronted by an evangelical brother who asked, Brother, are you saved? He says, my friend Hal rolled his eyes back and said, yes. Well, that didn't satisfy this brother. So he said, well, when were you saved? Hal said, about 2,000 years ago, about a 20 minutes walk from downtown Jerusalem. That's the foundation of our redemption. Not our profession of faith, but the object of our faith. Not our trust in Christ's finished work, but the finished work of Christ in which we trust. On the basis of that finished work, we are uncondemnable. And with the prophet of Isaiah, we can truly testify for ourselves that Christ was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. We are secure because of the death of Christ. Paul continues, though, and secondly, he tells us we are secure because of the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. Verse 34, again, Paul says that Christ Jesus died. He continues, though, and says, but more than that, was raised. The one who died on her behalf has risen from the dead. And Paul says, because that is true, we know that we will never be condemned. Earlier in the letter to the Romans, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 25, that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, And he was raised for, or on account of, our justification. Now let's back up for a second. Justification was secured through Christ's life and death. Absolutely. It's finished. His work is complete. Happened through his death. But how do we know that's really been achieved through his death? How do we know that his death really accomplished that? How do we know we've been justified by his blood? Because the tomb is empty. Because the tomb is empty. To put it another way, through the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated. He's proven, declared to be who he said he was and to have accomplished what he said he has accomplished. As Paul says in Romans 1.3, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection, Jesus is declared by the Father to be the sinless Son of God who came to deliver us from our sins. If he did not rise, it would have been clear that Jesus was not the eternal Son of God who took on flesh to save us. Because it would have shown that he was a liar or a lunatic. It would have shown that he did not live a perfect life for us and did not die under our punishment, but but instead he would have himself needed a Savior. Why is that? Because all who are in Adam are under the curse of death. The wages of sin is death. Righteous people are not under the curse of 
death. So if Jesus did not conquer death, it would have been shown that he is no better than us. And that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are of all most people to be, to be pitied. But he is risen from the dead. And because he's risen, we know that he is who he said he is and he accomplished what he came to accomplish. We know that he lived the life we could not live and died the death we deserved. And by his life and death, we are forgiven of our sins and declared righteous before the Father. Therefore, because of the resurrection, we know we are saved. We know we are secure. We know we are free. His work indeed is finished and our pardon and justification really do ring true. Not only that, but furthermore, we have certainty of our future by his resurrection. The resurrection doesn't just assure us of what's been accomplished, it assures us of what's to come. Remember Jesus said to Martha in John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. On the day we breathe our last, we know, as Jesus told the thief on the cross, that we will be with him in paradise. That we will be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. But it gets better. Just as he has been risen, just as he lives forevermore, one day we too will be raised from the dead and live forevermore. Free from the effects of the fall, free from death, free from sickness, free from a broken world, to dwell with Christ in a new creation. We read this passage in Sunday school this morning with the youth, but 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 18 gives us an awesome glimpse of this day. Paul writes, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's our hope. Future resurrection. Christ was raised on the morning of the third day, and at the end of the age, he will raise us to new life as well. I have a bad habit of keeping receipts in my wallet, but every now and then I'm thankful for it. Maybe some of you have the same bad habit. (laughs) But sometimes it's good because you pull out those receipts and you're reminded of things, aren't you? You're given assurance of transactions that you've made. Well, the empty tomb is God's receipt to us. Whenever we wonder, does the message of the cross ring true? Did Christ really... Save me from my sins. Will Christ really come back? Is the hope of heaven really a certain hope? All we need to do is look at the empty tomb. All we need to do is follow the words of the angels who said to the women in Matthew 28, 6, come and see the place where he lay. He died for us and he's risen for us. And therefore we have no reason to ask ourselves or to worry about whether or not our status will ever be reversed or revoked. We are safe because of his death and his resurrection. But third, Paul tells us we are secure also because of the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ. Looking at verse 34, Paul says that Christ who died and was raised 
is at the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God. Forty days after the resurrection, Luke tells us in Acts 1-9 that after giving his final words to the disciples, Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. In that moment, Jesus, as John 13-1 puts it, departed out of this world to be with the Father. The Father sent the Son to take on flesh to accomplish our redemption, and the Son, having accomplished redemption, returns to glory. And he returned to glory in the flesh. When Jesus rose from the dead, he did not cease to be incarnate. When he ascended to heaven, he did not cease to be incarnate. Now, why is that important? Well, remember the question David asks in Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Who fits that bill among us? Who among us truly has clean hands? Who among us has a pure heart? Who among us is free from sin? None of us. On our own, none of us have any shot of ascending the hill of the Lord, of dwelling in the presence of the Lord forever. But yet, we know we will ascend the hill of the Lord. We know we will dwell in the presence of the Almighty forever. Why? Because our king has gone before us. Listen to what David writes a few verses later in that same passage, Psalm 24, verses 7 to 8. He says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Having been raised, Christ has ascended the hill of the Lord and stands in the presence of the Father, in the flesh. By doing so, he himself is guaranteed that we will as well. On our own, we have no shot. But because Christ has done so on our behalf, we will too. Where he is, we will be also for all of eternity. Whether we die or he returns. As Paul says in Colossians 3 verse 4, our life is hidden with Christ on high. Or consider what he says in Ephesians 2 6, we have been raised with Christ and seated in the heavenly places. All the way the Belgic Confession puts it. We have our own flesh in heaven. A guarantee that Christ, our head, will take us, his members, to himself in heaven. Having ascended in the flesh, he now sits at the Father's right hand, Paul tells us. This language echoes the words of Psalm 110, verse 1, which we've looked at a lot during Jeff's series in Hebrews where David writes in verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The fact that Jesus is sitting emphasizes something to us. Being our high priest, Jesus no longer has any work to do to save us, to atone for us. The high priest under the old covenant 
sacrificial system were never finished in their sacrificial work. Year after year, they continually had to go to God and offer sacrifice for the sins of the people. Every year. But when Christ came, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14 tells us this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. No redeeming work is needed any longer because his redeeming work is done. It's finished. And brothers and sisters, his work is sufficient for us today, tomorrow, and forever. My, my favorite meal as a kid was my mom's spaghetti. Um, whenever mom made spaghetti, actually to this day, whenever my mom makes spaghetti, I know it's time to feast. Um, I'm at least good for two plates. But when I was a kid, my mom, she watched us like a hawk because uh, we needed leftovers. She had four, we had four sons, a lot of food, limited grocery budget. So once I got to about plate two, she, towards the end, she go, okay, I think you've had sufficient. As a kid, I'm like, why are you using these fancy words? What does that even mean? But what she's saying is you've had enough. The amount that you've been given sufficient for you. You, you don't stand in need of any more. And it's the same with Christ's work for us. Jesus tells us, my work is sufficient for you. His ascension proclaims to us that message. He is no longer standing and working, but he has ceased from his work of redemption. It's done. And at the Father's right hand, Christ is reigning. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to him. He reigns as king, not as though he didn't have this authority before. But being the victorious redeemer who has secured salvation for his people, he now reigns with absolute authority over heaven and earth and he is building his church, gathering in his lost sheep from all the nations. Why is that? So that as Jesus says in John 14, 3, where he is, there we may be also. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's completing the good work that he has started and he will bring all of it to completion. After all, he reigns and he reigns over everything. Who will stop him from accomplishing his mission? All that to say, because of the ascension of Christ and all that it represents and all that it means, we have nothing to fear. But fourth and finally, Paul tells us we're secure because of the intercession of Christ. The intercession of Christ. Christ who died, was raised, and is at the right hand of God, Paul tells us at the end of verse 34, is indeed interceding for us. To intercede means you make petition on behalf of another. Oftentimes you hear of Christians talk about intercessory prayer. That is, we're praying to the Lord on behalf of others. We approach God in the place of other people for their sake. Well, in heaven right now, Christ, who sits at the Father's right hand, Paul says, is interceding to the Father on our behalf. He's praying to the Father for our sake. And Paul says, because of this intercession, we know we will 
forever be secure in him. We will not be condemned. We will not fall back under guilt. We will not be kicked out of the family of God. Again, as the author to the Hebrews writes in Hebrews 7.25, Christ is able to save to the uttermost. He's able to save completely those who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. The reason that Christ completely saves, the reason that the benefits of his work are forever ours is because he is our intercessor forever, today, tomorrow, and throughout all of eternity. As Francis Turretin writes, love the way he puts it. He says, the method of our salvation, it was not sufficient to obtain salvation once unless it could be perpetually preserved and applied. Christ obtained the former by his satisfaction, that is his death, but the latter he should procure by his intercession. By the former he obtained salvation and by the latter he preserved it. Christ keeps us, he holds us fast by his intercessory work for us. But how does he intercede for us? Is Jesus in the presence of the Father on his hands and knees begging and trembling? No. The Father forgives us on account of Christ's death. He declares us righteous on account of Christ's life. So how then are we kept? How then are we kept? How then does Christ's intercession keep us in that? Because Christ forever appears before the Father as such. If you remember how John sees Christ in Revelation 5, he sees the Lion of Judah who's conquered. And what does he see? A lamb standing as though it had been slain. He appears in heaven for us as our victorious Savior. He forever appears before the Father as our substitute. As John Gill writes, Christ's intercession is done not by vocal prayer as in the days of his flesh on earth, or as supplicating an angry judge, or as controverting a point in the court of heaven, but by the appearance of his person for us, by the presentation of his sacrifice. And this intercession is happening at this very moment. Christ appears in heaven as our Savior, his work being finished, his work being done, and he stands before the Father on our behalf. What a comfort this is, especially when we consider our ongoing struggle against sin. As Christians, we ought to hate our sin. We ought to strive to put our sin to death day by day. But as we continue to live in this broken world, we won't be perfect. We haven't been and we never will be. Our sin grieves us. We hate and we lament the fact that we can't perfectly obey God as we ought. We long for the new creation because of that. I have news for you. It's going to be that way until Christ returns or we go to be with him. Like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 19, we too can testify, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And when we look in the mirror at our sin, we're reminded that we deserve God's justice for our sin. We deserve to be kicked out of the family of God. We deserve to suffer God's wrath for all of eternity. Those aren't wrong conclusions to come to. Sin deserves judgment. But though they're true, 
though we sin, 1 John 2, 2 tells us those amazing words, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love that. That's our present comfort in the struggle. When we sin, we have an advocate with the Father interceding for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus Christ, who took away our sin. Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law. And Jesus Christ, who pleads his finished work on our behalf, moment by moment. The hymn writer Charity Bancroft reminds us of this truth. And those words we sing often around here. They're not just words either. These reflect one of the greatest realities we can cling to. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Right now at this very moment, when we gather and we pray and we sing and we listen to the word preached, Christ is in the presence of the Father pleading for each and every one of us. It's going to be true when you leave this place. It's going to be true if you take a nap this afternoon. It's going to be true when you wake up tomorrow and you go to the job. It's going to be true at your lowest point this week. He pleads for you in the good times and the bad times and the worst times and in the most glorious times. Therefore, we're secure. Because Christ died, was raised, ascended, and interceded for us, we are secure. So as we come to a close, we don't need to make the mistake of believing that as believers, though we know the source of this assurance, that we will be free from doubt in this life. Doubts, questions, and fears will arise. We're sinners by nature, and though we look to Christ by faith, our faith is not perfect. We're like the man that told Jesus that time, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Whether because of trials we encounter or because of our struggle with sin, our faith in Christ will be tested and shaken. We've seen that in Hebrews. The question is not whether or not our faith in Christ will be shaken. The question is, where will we look when it does? Oftentimes in our day, people are advised to remember the day of their conversion when they doubt their salvation, the day they trusted Christ. Other times, folks are advised to look at the fruit of their lives and how the Lord is growing us in Christ. And while we can thank God for the grace he has shown us in giving us faith and growing us and conforming us to the image of Christ, none of those things are the ground of our assurance. The only ground, the primary ground, as Paul has reminded us in this text, is Christ. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession. You hear about people saying, these are my fighter verses. In the the worst times, these are my fighter verses. Well, the funny thing is, a lot of these fighter verses like this one don't tell us anything about how to fight. They tell us about everything about the one who's fought for us. When we look at him, his work for us, we find assurance. We're strengthened. We're comforted. We're encouraged. We're built back up. As Martin Luther said, and I think it's okay to quote Martin Luther two days before Reformation Day. I've said this quote before, but I love it. I wish I could just put it before my eyes every moment. He said, when I look at myself, I do not see how I could ever be saved. But when I look at Jesus, I do not see how I could ever be lost. 
Therefore, church, let's rest in him. We have all the reason to. Fears will arise, doubts will arise, but you need not be worried by them. Look to Christ. But we can only be assured that we are safe in Christ if we have taken refuge in him. If you're not hoping and trusting in Christ alone, know that you're not safe and secure. Don't say that to be mean or ugly. It's just the cold, hard truth. As Marcus pointed out to our Sunday school class this morning, there's only two types of people in the world, the saved and the lost. Those who've been forgiven and rescued by God and those who haven't. If you're not hoping and trusting in the one Savior who's able to deliver, you have no hope. But the good news is he welcomes all who will come to him. Whoever comes to him, he will in no way cast out. And as you've seen this morning, he's done everything necessary to save sinners like you and me. So if you have any questions or want to talk more, you can talk to me after the service, talk to any of our elders, talk to the person next to you. You're in the best place to have questions about the Christian faith. But our prayer is that you will look to Christ and be saved. He's the only reason we're here this morning. He's our greatest hope. He and he alone is the reason that we are free from condemnation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that the gospel is good news and that we don't have to worry or fear, though we might think we have every reason to. Father, I just pray that you will take these words, that you will strengthen us by them this week for my brothers and sisters in Christ, that, Lord, you will anchor them in these truths so that we may go out and tell others the great news of what Christ has done. Lord, I pray that as we prepare to come to the table, Lord, as we prepare to continue worshiping, that you would just fill our hearts with gratitude and that this would be a sweet time of communion at the table with Christ and with one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.